This is already the best interview I've ever had. Oh, thanks. <laughs> the word why, what a curious word. The kind of word that can make us cringe, feel defensive, or even distant. But you know, sometimes why is the key. A key that can unlock so much to our lives. Join me as we explore the why with fascinating contributors to the world. Those that entertain us, inform us, teach us about life, and if we're lucky, inspire the next in all of us. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and welcome to Headroom, a production of Rainlight and co-produced by Old Soul. Let's go. A note about this episode. In a perfect world, we would be in a music studio, having a jam session with padded walls to capture the richness and the beauty of the life that is DJ Cassidy. But life doesn't work that way. An impromptu conversation captured that I believe is of incredible and significant value to those in the creative world and those just looking for inspiration based on humans that care and are passionate about what they do. So, technically, an apology for the audio quality, but a big thumbs up and high five to DJ Cassidy for spending some time with this curious storyteller. Enjoy. Look, this is such a treat because I don't often get to sort of hang out with the people I'm going to interview over sort of a three or four day weekend. Yeah, prior to interviewing. Prior to, right, and get a chance to just watch you in action, right? See you mingle, interact in your element. Um, I want to start with this. And I say this because of watching you on stage and watching you with other people, even at the Post Malone event last night, right? And with Clef and everybody. You own the moment, but you also respect the moment. Tell me how that sits with you. I feel like my whole career has been based on my admiration of my musical heroes. And so even though Wyclef, Shaggy and Robin are my friends, I still in many ways Um, feel like a fan when I'm around them. Really? And that holds true with the members of Earth, Wind & Fire, whom I called friends. That holds true with Run from Run DMC. That holds true with um, Dougie Fresh. That holds true with a lot of my musical heroes. And I've always been very vocal about the fact that I think that those two feelings can coexist or those two things can coexist. I feel that someone can be your friend and your hero at the same time. And um, someone can be your friend, in a sense your peer, but you can also hold them on a high pedestal simultaneously. And yet so many people would struggle to own the moment holding both of those truths. 
I think the majority would, right? Like if that were the case and you were my friend and my hero, would I struggle in being able to own the moment when it was my time in whatever we're doing together, right? Um, yeah. So, you know, I've had years of practice on how to negotiate those two things and manage them. So sharing a stage the other night with three of my heroes who happen to be my friends at a show where my name is first on the billing is a very surreal thing. Because while I'm standing on stage, I'm picturing myself at Fuji's concerts when I was 14 years old. I reminded Wyclef of something I've told him in the past, which is the first time I met him was at the opening of the Virgin Megastore in Times Square. The Fuji's performed to open up what was going to be the biggest new New York, um, you know, um, the biggest New York music um, retailer, which it became for many years. Um, and I was in the front row. <laughs> um, if you could call it a row, it was a store opening, you know? I was in the front and the score had just come out, their second album, the album that I think ended up selling 12 million, probably more by now. And I remember going up to Wyclef and saying that was the greatest performance I'd ever seen. Now, I was 14-ish, and I went up to him, and he's always been the same cool, normal guy. No bodyguards, just hanging out, accessible. Yeah, the same way he was way. today at the race. Yeah. And I went up to him, no struggle to get to him. I don't know what I said, but I know I... I know one thing I said, which was that was the greatest performance I'd ever seen. And I felt that at that moment. And he goes, it wasn't really a performance though. We were just jamming. And it's so, that, that, that quote of his is so representative of um, who he is. So how do you line up with performance versus sort of being in your element and jamming? Because I mean, you put on a show. I mean, it's, it's visual, it's, there's an energy, there's a sort of a pulse to it, right? And then it's what you hear. Yeah. And it's the artistry and the way in which you paint a picture by weaving in all this fantastic music. So is it a performance? After two and a half years of piecing together a puzzle, of 220 artists and 166 songs. I've learned how to um, write scripts that leave space for improvisational moments. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't very thought out. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't meticulously plotted. And I'd be lying if I said um, I wasn't um, an obsessive compulsive 
I'm a performer. But you have to be, don't you? That's what you always hear the performers out. Well, I can't speak for others. I just know how I operate, and and that's how I operate. But hip hop, which my um, entire love of music and passion for DJing and career is founded on was birthed on um, improvisation. DJs playing records in a spontaneous order, rappers freestyling, which is the word that's used for making up lyrics as you go. Well, that was all freestyling, of course. And so, yeah, when I put together meticulous puzzles, like I did the other night, I think that it's extremely important to design space for improvisation because those typically um, create the most magical moments. Um, one of, if not, if not the most, most magical moment the other night was the finale of the show when I brought on Shaggy and Robin Thicke um, to the stage again to join Wyclef in singing Bob Marley's No Woman, No Cry. Now, Wyclef's rendition of that, which was on the score, is epic. And it's not easy to cover songs, and it's particularly not easy to cover iconic songs, and it's particularly not easy to cover iconic songs from iconic artists. Um, the Fugees do it very well. Killing Me Softly, Exhibit A, and um, you know, No Woman, No Cry, Exhibit B. And there's other exhibits. Um, but Wyclef has never done No Woman, No Cry with Shaggy, has never done No Woman, No Cry with Robin, certainly has never done it with Shaggy and Robin, and I've certainly never been on stage for it. So, <laughs> so the four of us together doing it felt very special. Obviously, anything Bob Marley feels um, 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 feels um, um, significant. But at that moment, if I had to pick one, which I wouldn't want to, but if you held a gun to each side of my head each and forced each, not even one side, each side, I would certainly say, if I had to, two guns to my head, that the most magical moment of the night was the grand finale, when Wyclef, Shaggy, and Robin all joined together to sing the woman to cry. What I thought was particularly beautiful of that moment was that with no rehearsal and no plan, they all let each other have space to sing various parts simply by watching each other and feeling each other's energy. I was posting videos on Instagram till 6.30 in the morning that night. I was just so excited I couldn't calm down, so I just kept watching videos and finding videos and posting videos. And there's one moment where Robin goes up to stand with me and we're rocking out the chorus together. 
And then you could almost see Robin look down and go to himself, oh wait, there's another verse, this is rocking, and he goes back down, and you could see him come in, and Shaggy and Wyclef stopped, and Robin came in with a line, and then Clef kept going, and Shaggy ad-libbed. It was like they all had parts with no rehearsal, and that's three real deal artists feeling each other. It reminds me, and I'm thinking of this now for the first time, in drama class in high school. I wasn't an actor, but you know, you have to take some kind of drama class, right? Like everyone does. I remember in drama class, improv. And one of the things that my teacher would teach, and I'm sure, you know, I'm sure this goes for every every class, is that the art of improvisation is reading the other person and allowing them to speak. You don't want to talk over each other in improv. It's like the biggest fail, right? And you also don't want there to be silence. You never want to say something that deads the conversation. So yeah, exactly, exactly. And so watching the three of them, and it wasn't like Shaggy and Robin were backing up Wyclef. They all- I mean, it looked seamless from the audience perspective. The whole show or that song? The whole show, but I mean, even the clothes. I mean, yeah. That to me, that I mean, I, when I was watching that, I kept thinking to myself, are you aware in the moment that you're in the zone, almost like an athlete? And if you are, like, what are you seeing? Because if you kind of step back, not that everyone has the dream to be sort of in your shoes, but let's just say, you know, a young kid, you say, you're going to grow up and you're going to do something where people just by the very nature of what you do, are gonna feel better when they're around you. And they're gonna enjoy being in your presence because of what you do. And by default, now you're gonna have an incredible network of people that are recognizable. I mean, you're living a bit of a dream just from a human perspective in engaging and being social and really the power of creativity with other humans. So in those moments, are you aware or are you really good at riding that sort of rainbow of energy? I can never stop my mind. So when I'm on yeah. no, so when I'm on stage at a show like the other night, which is a big moment for me, it's 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 the beginning of a new chapter for Pass the Mic. It's kind of the culmination of chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2. The 10th and final show aired a couple weeks ago. Um you know, and now I'm starting to take it to the to the stage. So it's it's really the beginning uh, you know, it's really, it's really the, past, the past few weeks has been kind of the end of chapter one, the beginning of chapter two. I'm thinking of a million things when I'm on stage because I'm the conductor. So the songs need to start at the right time and the songs need to end at the right time. And I need to keep control of the crowd and to, um, yeah, to dictate the energy. And I need to create the space for the artists to enter and have their moment. And I need to, to find the balance between interacting with the artists and the audience and allowing them to have their space. And I'm always one song ahead. So my mind is a blender of activity in those moments. All the while, I'm reminding myself to take in the moment. Because that's the 14 year old in you? It's the 10 year old in me. 
I got my turntables for my 10th birthday. I had no dreams of DJing at the White House. I had no dreams of this being my job. I had no dreams of making a lot of money. I had no dreams of being on stage with artists whom I, um, whom I admired. I think my only dream as a kid, and I don't even know if it was so conscious, but the only thing I ever thought about from age 10 to 18 was one of my favorite rappers knowing my name. Like I just wanted Tretch from Naughty by Nature to know who I was. Like Tretch was like the coolest man on planet Earth to me. I looked up to Run DMC, Michael Jackson, Bobby Brown, and Tretch. You're Mount Rushmore. Tretch to me was just the coolest person that ever walked the face of the Earth. And, and um, you know, my parents were very supportive of my love of hip hop. Um, you know, my dad took me to um, um, every concert that I wanted to go to. And I was like, um, you know, that little kid that was always there. And um, I ended up, um, you know, meeting the members of Naughty by Nature as a child so often that, 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 that later on when my career started to happen and I reconnected with them, they were like, oh shit, you're the kid that we used to see everywhere. Um, but anyway, back to the stage, I know I went on a tangent. So in that moment of everything I described, um, I am um, particularly, I mean, there's, ma there's many moments in life, but particularly on these past the mic live moments, right? Which there have only been a several so far. I'm reminding myself constantly during the show, while I'm emceeing and trying to ignite people in this, you know, in an explosive way, I'm reminding myself, yo, uh, Wyclef's behind you on three enormous screens doing Ready or Not, and you're ad-libbing over Lauren's part. Like, it's, you know, it's very surreal. I don't take that moment for granted. Those are the biggest thrills of my life. And, um, and you know, speaking of Wyclef, Wyclef and I have known each other for years. He was on one um, edition of Pass the Mic um, about a year ago. But this weekend was really the first time we spent three days together. And it was the first time we really had the opportunity to bond. And that was, you know, equally great as the show. What, what were you like as a kid? I mean, you were going to concerts, you had a supportive family. Were you, were you like the other kids? Were you kind of in your own, your own some sort of mental space? Did you get along with kids in the same way? Um, of kids your age, or were you already thinking? I mean, maybe you wouldn't have known it then, but were you already sort of processing things and sort of creating in your mind way beyond? You know, I didn't dream of um, being DJ Cassidy for a living. I just did it. I was never thinking about the future. I just wanted to do it. I just kept doing it. <laughs> and it became what it became. 
the dedication was real, but not because I saw it as a business. It was just because I wanted to take part in hip hop culture in some um, kind of meaningful way. And so I thought that DJing could be that. And it felt right right away. And it was clear um, that I had found something I loved. Um, I was always, I was always the music man. I was always the kid on the school bus that brought that brought the boombox that sat in the back seat and played music for the bus always. <laughs> what, what what age did that start? That's such a visual image. At at least ten, if not younger. And I was in the back row with a Sony boombox playing Black Sheep, The Choice Is Yours. Playing Biz Barky, Just a Friend, playing Janet Jackson, Escapade. I can oh, picture the singles. I can picture the singles. You remember what those are with the, with the cardboard? What was your question? I cut you off. No, no. So about, I mean, gosh, 99.9% of kids just wouldn't have the confidence to do that. Did you ever struggle as a kid with confidence? Well, it wasn't vocal. Do you know what I mean? I wasn't emceeing the bus. Yeah. So, no. well... I never struggled with confidence, but hold that thought because I want because I want to say this one thing. It it DJing is a very isolating activity because you're not in the party. You're you're supplying the party. Say, say more about that because it, I think that would be counter to what people would expect you to say. Well, the image of a DJ in a DJ booth is a very real image. Even though you saw me on a big stage the other night, the image of a DJ rocking in a DJ booth at a club, for example, is a real thing. And so when you put yourself in that booth as a kid, when all your friends are outside the booth having fun with each other, dancing with each other, socializing with each other, even if you feel like you're the center of the party, in a sense, you're left out. So I always felt, I never struggled with confidence, I always felt, in a sense, like I was the coolest um, kid in the room, but simultaneously felt like when the party was over, everyone was going somewhere to hang out and I was going home alone. Part of that was probably conjured up in my mind, but I think it came from the reality of, I brought the record crates home and everyone went to someone's house to hang out. <laughs> and so I think that you could almost compare it to this image of, I, I was always the kid who could sit at every table in the cafeteria you know, all the clicks, there's all these clicks, right? I could always sit at every table. I was friends with every group of kids at school, but then I probably sat alone and ate my lunch. <laughs> but, but I never felt uncool, I never felt unpopular. 
but I did always feel that even though I felt in some cases I was Headroom the center of the party, and in some, in some cases probably I felt like I was the bull's person at the brand and nuance. But I did always feel supercharge your brain simultaneously left out. That's old soul. Shoot Matt a note at a old soul That's a o l d s o u l dot com. And now back to our guest. When I can speak from my own experience the other night, that was a musical experience. You know, when I'm in my mid forties, that I'd never had. Like it was really powerful, and I had to fight. Watching you thinking is he an architect of creativity, you know, like these sorts of things. So to think that it can also be isolating and then potentially lonely, I think, is a powerful statement. Well, I think all performers, I don't want to say all, I think many performers throughout the decades of the music business have expressed, um, expressed the loneliness that comes, with the t um, that comes with performing in front of many people and then going backstage and then to a hotel or home by yourself, it's it's a it's a stark um, contrast. I don't want to be so dramatic as to compare my experience to the experience that we envision Michael Jackson to have had in life, by any means. But 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 I do feel um, that there is something isolating about being a DJ for the reasons that I've explained, particularly when you become one at age 10. Because in fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh, eighth, ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th is when you start to go to school dances and house parties. I was always the DJ at these parties. So I'm the first to arrive and the last to leave. So you could think you're the coolest, baddest motherfucker at that party. But in many cases, you're kind of showing up alone and going home alone. But this isn't a pity party yeah, no. because um, that how does, how does that, that journey. I've never thought about that. It's a great question. I think it prob. I think that experience probably trained me to be a independent confident person who could be alone. I'm very happy being alone, almost to a fault. Let's talk about when you first started recognizing. I had this thought during the, during the concert. I thought, you know, I want to know. We talked about this at dinner last night. There were things I wanted to ask you, but I didn't want to sort of preempt the, the conversation we're having now. Let's talk about just music in general. Like, are you hearing are you hearing beats at a different frequency when you walk on the street that, that I or others would just not hear? Do you hear somebody tapping a pen that makes you start to think something? And then you're already sort of this very, you know, you're creating in your mind. Like, tell me about the frequency because you have to be able to hear things at a level that's just different, right? And that's your skill. That's a skill that you have. Kind of paint that picture because I think that's, that has the potential to be a very beautiful picture that a lot of people don't get to experience. 
I don't want to paint a picture just because I feel you want me to paint it. The answer is... Don't paint it if you, you get my point. The answer is, I don't think I do. I think maybe Pharrell does. <laughs> I do. Yeah. I think Pharrell, like the greatest songwriter and producer of our time, you know, sees colors in the, in the sky as he hears, <laughs> as he hears a song. Um, I don't, I don't want to be so presumptuous to put myself um, on that planet. But um, I think what makes, I think one of the things that makes a great DJ great is um, his ability to um, to weave um, music together in a seamless way to create something special, to put pieces of a puzzle together to create a puzzle that's special that others might not have put together. Um, but simply and less poetically put, it's what you play, how you play it, what you play next. So, okay, so right, because you've got your heroes, you've got your, you know, you've been doing this, you know, gosh, maybe to 10, whatever, when you started with blue boxes on a bus, but like, you like to be alone. By the way, I don't know how many years you just, you just uttered, but the answer is 31. No, no, I know, I'm saying that when you were eight or 10, you know, like back. Oh, yeah, yeah, but I'm saying, when people ask me how many years have you been DJing, I tell them the answer, they look at me like, 31 years. What? They're like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. So then what, what inspires you? Like, you'll talk to a writer, and the writer will say, the sound of, you know, trees in the background and writing out in the woods, and like, there's certain things, you know, um, I listen to film scores when I write on repeat, and it, it feels like it opens up my mind when I'm writing. What inspires you? Do you have things that you just know that if you, if, in essence, you kind of have to get in the zone or you want to get in the zone? There's just, you have some go-tos that are really just personal to you. Well, I think um, one of the things that inspires me the most, not to rehash something we've talked about, is speaking to my um, heroes. So having that. So, I was so inspired this weekend because Wyclef tells the best stories. And he told me some I knew and some I didn't this weekend. Stories about the first record he ever sang on. Um, stories, which was not a Fuji's record. Stories um, 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 about shows he did um, in, um, you know, um, places in the world that I've um, you know never been to, stories about how some of the records he made were created, stories about some new music he's making, ideas he had for me, for you, yeah, for me, and for projects I'm working on, specifically um, specifically a new record that I'm working on, speaking to people whom I really look up to and admire, um, inspire me. Um, before we went on stage, Robin um, said, um, I'm sure Andre is looking down on us with a big smile on his face. So Andre Harrell, um, who passed away at the beginning of, um, of the pandemic, May 2020, was Robin's mentor and my mentor. And my best friend, O'Neill McKnight's cousin. I think you met O'Neill this weekend. I did. 
Andre, um, um, you know, one of the most prolific music impresarios of all time. Um, the godfather of New Jack Swing and hip hop soul. Um, uh, the founder of Uptown Records. Um, signed Mary J. Blige, Heavy D and the Boys, Jodeci. Later in life, signed Robin Thicke. Had an intern whose name was Puffy, who went out to start Bad Boy after Andre said, you gotta go. Um, and they, of course, maintained an extremely close relationship to the day he died. And um, Andre was, um, you know, Robin's greatest mentor um, and mine as well. And so when Robin said to me before, I know, he said, he said it as O'Neill and I were saying, he said, I know Andre is looking down on us right now, loving this moment. Um, and so that inspired me. So, you know, um, I think I, well, yeah, I told you last night, the story of how I thought of um, Pass the Mic, um, I thought of it on a phone call with one of my heroes. So, so much leads back to um, just um, drawing inspiration consciously and subconsciously, and most probably subconsciously, from people whom I look up to. Based on the relationship, right? It's that that interplay that you have with your with these icons. I'm, yeah, I mean, I don't think I me without the people whom I um, 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 whom I admire. I mean, I think I think I've I've drawn inspiration from everyone and, um, you know, put it all in a, um, you know, mental um, blender and uh, poured it out and it was me. Have you, have you ever lost yourself in the sort of the, the growth of your career? I, I've found it's very fascinating people who become incredibly accomplished that there'll be these moments where they believe the hype a little bit and they have to kind of get themselves centered again you ever have, have you ever had that moment or have you really been able to successfully over the 31 years just monitor who you are? Because I get the sense you take it very seriously. I don't think I've ever lost myself because I never really had a moment where I thought I made it. I still feel like I'm trying to make it. And um, I've DJed for the greatest um, artist of my time. Um, I've DJed for, uh, uh, you know, the, the greatest president of our time. I've DJed for um, the most um, definitive um, cultural figures of our time. Um, I've shared a TV show with 220 um, legendary icons. Um, I've shared a stage with um, you know, a countless list of um, you know, musical superstars. Yet, I don't believe I've ever felt worthy of their presence. I, I, I had a little prayer moment um, before the show. Um, with Robin 
Shaggy and Wyclef. Um, and I just wanted to say a few words before I went on stage because I was the first, you know, I was on stage alone for 30 minutes. And I thanked them and said, um, you know, I thanked them. I told them how much I appreciate them. And I told them how excited I was and how much it meant to me that they were here, how much I loved them as my friends and my mentors. And I said, my only real goal tonight is to make the three of you proud to be on stage with me and to not let you three down. You know, if they weren't there, I could, you know, I could do it with my eyes closed. I've been doing this my whole life. And I dealt with every possible issue there could be. Do you know what I mean? Like every artist has, right? Every artist has dealt with sound issues and light issues and technical issues and emotional issues, right? I mean, artists go on stage in bad moods all the time and everything. And I'm fine. But having them three on stage puts a different kind of pressure because I take that very seriously. I get the sense that you you kind of cross the threshold and that humility, I mean, it's fair to say you've earned the right to not have to be as humble as you are, um, but but maybe that's part of the secret sauce, that you're still that 10-year-old with the boombox in the back of the bus. There's some power in that. Yeah, I mean, I think the key is to, is, is, is to never let go of being a fan. Never let go of being a fan. Yeah. The, there's a negative connotation sometimes, I guess, with being a fan. I'll ask anyone to take a picture with them. <laughs> I always have. You know, it used to be um, like, you know, could I have an autograph? I mean, that's, I guess, somewhat, um, you know, dated because we all have cameras in our pocket now. But um, at one point, we didn't always have a camera, so you got an autograph. That's the only reason that changed, right? If we had a, you know, if we didn't have a camera, that would be the proof you met someone. Um, no, pictures are great. It's not corny Instagramming. It's called memories. <laughs> You're creating memories. Yeah, it's called memories. I'll never laugh at someone for taking a picture. I mean, of anyone. I'll go up to anyone and say, can we take a picture? I mean, you know, try to be polite and understand where someone is at the moment. But I'm saying, I'll ask anyone to take a picture. I've asked Chevy Chase to take a picture three times. He's mean to me every time, but I keep doing it. He's mean every time. <laughs> yeah, but I keep doing it. I still love him. Uh, uh, tell me, tell me what, what, and you can define what this means to you, but tell me what failure looks like in your world and or how you deal with insecurity when you do have the real that you do and President Obama and Oprah. I mean, you know, the list is just, it's almost ridiculous. It's so powerful. So tell me about your relationship to failure or how you understand that. Being someone who is meticulous, who has to be in what you do. Or failure sounds so powerful and so um, extreme. I don't think I've ever thought something I've done was a failure. I mean, some things have been more successful than others and some ideas come to fruition and some don't. And if some don't, maybe they weren't meant to be or maybe they're meant to be on, you know, the back burner for a little while and then you get um, re-inspired. There's many reasons why you know, the stars don't align. I believe in that. Stars align and stars don't align, and I don't know why. Um, um, 
So I don't ever think I've had to deal with feeling like something was an epic failure, but um, I've never been the type of person who comes home at night and says, and says everything was amazing. I've never been the type of person to come home. Um, I don't frequently, uh, I've never been the, I'm trying to figure out this is, I've never been the kind of person who, 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 who frequently comes home at the end of the night and says, I killed it. Very rare. I'm very, I'm very um, critical of you myself, very critical. So the other night when I called my mother, who would have been here, but um, her mother just died, who was 95, my grandmother. And, and so she didn't feel up for traveling. So she would have been here. My father was here. I think you met him or did you see him? I don't know. My dad was here. Um, but I called my mom and she's like, oh my God, I saw the videos. How was it? Or her first word was, I think she picks up and goes, so? Like she wants to hear what I thought. That was her first word, so? And I said, it was great. And she goes, well, if you say it was great, then it was amazing. Because very rarely, I, I, I don't want to say I'm half empty, but I'll comment on the one thing I didn't like first. I'm, you know, I hold, I hold myself to a high standard. But the other night I said was great. What was the first pinch me moment in, in this outside of seeing, you know, like the first song, the intro, the intro, the intro. Do you remember the intro? Oh yeah. Like the that. intro. I'm standing behind this screen with Phil Collins in the air tonight. The most like intense, dramatic song, like of all time. Right. Like, like, Oh my God, you're so like fucking dramatic that you're entering to this song. Right, like if my sister was there, she would have been like rolling her eyes, like, "Oh my god, oh, what, is you're, you're, what is he? Do? You're walking on to this dramatic song. Who the fuck do you think you are?" You know, that would have been, you know, that's that's a um, like siblings, um, you know, analysis and older siblings. So you know, I'm behind the screen, this, you know, thirty foot screen, and my image is projected on all three, I'm articulating this bad, so you know, you write it better, you saw it, but you know, I'm being projected on these three enormous square screens. I'm behind the center screen, the screen's about to raise, and it's the, you know, and then the keyboards, and then Phil's voice, I can feel it, and the screen's raising, and I'm lifting my head, and I'm like, wait, is this shit really happening? So that was the, that was the first pinching moment of, um, you know, of the night, but, but, you know, past the mic, which really is what that show was. That was not a typical DJ Cassidy DJ set. Um, past the mic has been one pinch me moment after the other for the past two and a half years. Is it two and a half? It, it premiered in July, August, September, October. No, 24, 27 months. The past 27 months has been full of continuous pinch me moments. I filmed 220 artists whom I love. So right there, there's, you know, it, it's, it's right there with nothing else surrounding. There's 220 pinch me moments. And then I could tell you others, like doing past the mic for Joe Biden's televised inauguration, 
like doing a pass the mic Tommy Hilfiger global campaign, um, like pass the mic live at the Pegasus World Cup with Ja Rule, Little Kim, and Mace, like pass the mic live at the opening of the Hard Rock Hotel with Fat Joe, Buster Rhymes, and Nas, pass the mic at Formula One with Williams Racing. But there's so many going to concerts and walking through the crowd and people stopping to take pictures with me, not because, oh, it's DJ Cassidy. Oh, it's DJ Cassidy, we love your show. So that's changed. You know, it's now we love your show. So, you know, so many pinch me moments over the past 27 months because of Pass the Mic. There were many pinch me moments prior to that in my life. We could talk about those, but the past 27 months has created a whole new wave, tidal wave of pinch me moments. Talk about President Obama and the impact. I just set that up beautifully with the pinch me moments, didn't I? That's, that's the... I mean, I would think if there's ever a moment where it, it may be hard to be who you need to be in that moment, it's because you were President Obama and, and celebrating, you know, an inauguration, just the power of what, what those events meant to the nation. A first inauguration, a second inauguration, the president's 50th birthday, the first lady's 50th birthday, and a dozen others. If you look at the front of the White House, this is the front and the two columns are here. This is where the party was. Not like in some adjacent thing or like a tent, right? Like, you know when someone like a famous person in Beverly Hills, oh, the party's at their house, but then you never even walk in the house. You know what I'm talking about? And the party's in a tent, right? Like the party's at George Clooney's house, but you never walk you into know, George Clooney's house. Bathroom? <laughs> the porta potty's not even on the property. Okay, this is where it was. So when you write it, describe what I'm doing. These are the columns. You walk in the front door. Red room, um, yellow room, blue room, green room, red room, the four rooms Eleanor Roosevelt designed. And then this room. After all these years, I still don't know the name. This room. And the room goes the whole distance. So on one end, you see the Washington Monument. On the other end, you see the Capitol building. It's that simple. And so, I mean, the pinch me moments, I could just tell you many. Okay, I'll tell you many, in no particular order. Okay, it's Obama's 50th birthday. I'm getting ready to go on. Janelle Monet is finishing her set. Okay, this isn't like a show with seats. It's like a party. It's like people are standing and there's a little riser. It's like in the. It's not like you know, big to do. It's like a house party. It's a big house party. Yeah, 500 people, but 500 people is not a lot. This is intimate. Yeah, yeah. And so someone taps me on the shoulder. I'm like nervous. I'm about to go into White House. This was the first time. His 50th birthday. The, the first inauguration, there was no party at the White House. The party was at a convention center. It was televised, the one I DJed. There was no White House party. The second inauguration, the party was at the White House. So the first time I DJed at the White House was his 50th birthday, not the inauguration. So someone taps me on the shoulder and goes, hey, um, Cassidy, uh, uh, Stevie Wonder would like to talk to you. So first of all, why is anyone like asking me permission? <laughs> like, I'm like, it's Stevie. I'm like, yes, please bring him up. Like, where can I walk to him? Okay. So Stevie comes over to me and is like, Cassidy, I, um, I want to jam with you for the president. Let's surprise him. So he goes, um, throw on a beat and I'll sing um, Sign Still Delivered. 
Okay. Is, is as, the pressure going no, no, as this conversation is happening, the president is now on stage. When I say stage, I mean one foot high riser, thanking Janelle Monet, getting ready to announce me. As this has happened, I'm listening to Stevie in one ear, but like tuning out so I can hear what the president's saying in the other. Um, and um, I say to Stevie, cool. And Stevie just walks on stage. And we haven't been announced yet. He just walked. And the president goes, well, it looks like we have a surprise. I don't even know this was happening. And it's like, Stevie Wonder, ladies and gentlemen. And I go, oh, oh my God, I guess I got to follow. And I just walk on and get in position. And the president goes, and DJ Cassidy, ladies and gentlemen, this whole time I'm thinking of what beat I'm about to drop. So I'm saying to myself, what tempo is Sign Seal Delivers? And I just knew what to drop. I said, I'm gonna drop Billy Squire Big Beat. Boom, boom, Which one DMC first used for here we go, here we go, here we go, here we go, here we here we here we go. DMC and DJ Run. Dum diddy dum diddy diddy dum dum. That song was never recorded in a studio. They performed it at a Jelly Bean Benitez night at a club called The Fun House in 1983. The only recording, it says live from The Fun House. And you hear Jam Master J going from turntable to turntable every four bars of the beat. There was no instrumental and there was no serato and no loops. He was looping it every four bars. That means every seven seconds about. So I said, I'm gonna do that. If I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it real. And Jay-Z later used that for 99 Problems. I have 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one. Hit me, boom, it's those drums. The drums have been used a million times. So I, so Stevie's now sitting at a keyboard. I'm now behind the turntables and the president has now announced us and walks off stage. And I go, chicka, 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 boom, clack, boom, clack, boom, clack, clack, boom, clack, two more bars, boom, clack, clack, boom, clack. Boom, clack, clack, boom, chicka, 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 boom. And I'm really doing it. And I could have looped it in Serato and I didn't. I said, I'm gonna really do it like Jam Master J. And suddenly he starts, dan, 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 dan. And he starts singing, sign, seal, delivered, I'm yours, playing the keyboard over it. Okay? The crowd goes crazy. And I look to my right and see Jay-Z and Chris Rock nodding their head with the most forceful conviction to this beat like this. With that face you make when something's so dope but you look like you, look like you want to kill someone. Like it's this face. Like that, how do you describe that face? Like that mean, like this is the most hip hop moment ever taking place at the White House because I was doing something Jam Master Jay did with Run DMC with Stevie Wonder at the White House. You know what I love about that? In that moment, when I said to you at the beginning, you own the moment and you also own the respect of the moment. You pulled from history and legacy. There's something very powerful in that. It feels like it is so authentic to who you are and who I've experienced. Let's close with this. 
That whole thing, by the way, was 30 seconds. Not, not the performance. The conversation with Stevie and, and, and me saying got you and him walking out and saying that and me walking out was 30, you know, maybe 60. Maybe 60. Maybe 60. What's, what's, let, let's put a wrapper on this. What, what's the moral of your story? What, what's, the, what's the anthem that represents who you are as Cass, as your, as your friends call you? Uh, I think it's powerful for people. It doesn't mean that there's going to be another kid out there with a boombox or something on the back of a bus, but what, what's the moral of your story that, that we could relate to? I should say first, I feel presumptuous trying to offer moral to my story like I'm at the end of the road and have the wisdom of a lifetime to look back. I mean, you've brought out in some senses in the past hour more like poetic thoughts about myself than I have on my own, which is a testament to you. So I don't want to be so presumptuous to claim I have the moral to my story. But I could offer maybe one potential. <laughs> um, I think that all of my highs have stemmed from celebrating the people and things that inspired me. And so I continue to do so. Honoring those that, that came before you in, in, a, in a very deliberate and passionate way. Well, what a treat to welcome someone you didn't know into your world for the last three days. And there's just a genuineness about you that I have. I've got great appreciation for. Thank it's you. It's inspiring. I don't have your talent, but like we talked before we got in here, sort of, I welcomed you into my DJ booth. Well, you have another talent because I meant it when I said that, you know, like when I was talking to Williams the past week about the crowd, we got to get the crowd right. We got to get the seating right because artists, artists um, feed off um, off their crowd. And just on a side note, and I'm not saying this because I'm here for them, but I perform at a lot of events and I go to a lot of events and Williams curated an amazing event with, an, with, with, with amazing people. And you know, they say, um, um, some say artists shouldn't blame their tools. I don't know how much I believe that. Tools are important. A sound system's important. The crowd's important. It's not about blaming your tools, but tools are important. And, um, and uh, um, you know, there's 400,000 people here for the race this weekend, but Williams got 2,000 of the most energetic, fun people in town who seem to love music, who seemed to want to dance, who seemed to want to sing. And that, you know, that made my job easy. Um, but where was I going with this? There was a point. I don't know how I got to that, but I'm sure when you listen back, you'll remember, but I got carried away. But um, I know the point I was trying to make uh, um, at large, which was, oh, I know what I was saying. The way the crowd brought out, I think, the best in us because the crowd was feeding us 
you brought out things that I typically might not have articulated. And that, you know, that's, you know, that's your talent. So when you say not as talented, maybe not the same talent, but. It takes two to tango and it's about people and, and humanity and understanding, you know, in a world that is becoming less authentic, I think it's incredible to celebrate authenticity and humility and you've got it in spades. Keep crushing it. You've inspired me. God knows I'm paying for that concert, even to this, <laughs> to this moment. Uh, but for all the best reasons, uh, keep it up. And I look forward to uh, catching up with you in the future. Thank you so much. This was great. Thanks for taking the plunge into Headroom, where we uncover the why behind the what and who impacting our lives. Headroom is a production of Rainlight and co-produced by our friends at Old Soul. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and this is Headroom.